0: Hello and welcome to the 42nd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published last month and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com, and all profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its
1: impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, as is always the case with COVID-19, there's good and bad news. The good news is that 67% of American adults have had at least one vaccine shot and 58% are fully vaccinated. And Daily deaths continue to plummet. As a result, the bad news is that the resistance among those not vaccinated is rising during a time that the more transmissible and highly dangerous Delta variant, the one from India, has become the dominant strain in the US, accounting for more than 50% of new cases. As a result, our nation is becoming divided between those who are relatively well protected and those at great Personal and community wide risk. Globally, the story is much worse than in the United States. There now have been over 4 million confirmed deaths from COVID 19. And most likely, this is a gross underreporting, since a large number of people in countries like India and Brazil who died from COVID 19 were never seen by a medical professional and their demise was not attributed to the virus. Listeners should think of what is happening in the US as two distinct populations, one at high risk and one at low risk. In the locations with 70 to 80% vaccination rates, not only are vaccinated individuals protected, but those who aren't vaccinated have a much lower chance of becoming infected since there are few people around them who are. In contrast, the risk is many times greater in areas of low vaccination rates with a high risk of unvaccinated individuals becoming sick, particularly with the Delta variant, as we said, now the dominant strain. With that as background, the data aligns with what you might predict. As an example, July 4th weekend led to a significant increase in cases in the low vaccination areas, but little change in geographies with high vaccination rates. The places with low vaccination rates like Arkansas saw a doubling of cases. Missouri experienced a 30% increase in hospitalizations leading to a ventilator shortage. The national data reflects a combination of the two populations, and it presents a picture that's much worse than the reality in the highly vaccinated areas, and much less worrisome than for unvaccinated people living in low vaccination places. What we see is that COVID-19, which had soared to become the third leading cause of death in the United States, behind high heart disease and cancer in 2020, has now fallen back to number seven overall. But in low vaccination areas, it remains much higher High vaccination areas, lower on the list. And the difference in attitudes about the risks are expanding. In fact, in states with high vaccination rates, we're seeing a growing number of people getting a second Pfizer shot after they received the J&J vaccine that should be a one and done, although the CDC has yet to recommend this approach. While in the low vaccination areas, people are still resisting signing up for even one dose of any of the vaccines. Finally, across the nation, optimism among Americans when it comes to COVID-19 is growing. As an example, only 4 in 10 Americans, when polled, felt it would be risky to attend a 4th of July celebration. A year ago, 8 in 10 were afraid. And as a result, this year, the roads and airways were jammed.
0: Robbie, many listeners have asked us to explain more about this risk from the Delta variant. Uh, Let me ask you a series of questions based on the requests
1: we received. First, how worried should people be? Jeremy, the answer is that everyone should be worried. Data published online this week showed that the Delta variant spreads 225% faster than the original coronavirus. And researchers have shown that this more rapid spread reflects the fact that in the respiratory tracts of infected people, there's a thousand times more copies of this virus than you would expect to see with the original coronavirus. And as a result, when people become infected, they are infectious far earlier in their clinical course. The combination of higher infectivity, increased viral concentrations, and earlier transmissibility make it more dangerous for both the people who come down with COVID-19 and anyone around them who remains unvaccinated. But the level of concern and the degree of danger do vary greatly by geography and vaccination status. First, there are the people who are in low vaccination areas who haven't been vaccinated. And for this group, the threat is massive. These individuals have a much higher risk, estimated to be as high as twice the chances of becoming sick as they would have had during the initial COVID-19 era. And for those who become ill, there's evidence that the disease may be worse than with the original coronavirus. Whereas the first virus was likely to be transmitted from one person to three, the new variant goes on average from one to five. That means if you're in a room with someone who's sick, you're twice as likely to become infected. People in this unvaccinated category should be socially distancing and wearing a mask. But of course, if they are concerned, what they really should do is be vaccinated and take precautions until two weeks after their second shot. In contrast, there are the people in the high vaccination area who have been vaccinated. Their chances of getting sick Very low, and the chances of becoming seriously ill and needing hospitalization extremely minimal. The only risk that they have is if they have an underlying immune problem, and their doctors should be able to inform them whether the medications they're on pose a great threat. The biggest risk to the vaccinated group is that the current variant will mutate further and become resistant to the antibodies that the vaccine produces. So far, this has not happened. Then there's a third group. These are the people who are vaccinated, but they live in the unvaccinated areas. And they're in an intermediate category. They are at more risk than the vaccinated individuals in the high vaccination areas, but much, much less risk than their neighbors in the low vaccination areas who haven't been vaccinated at all. Current recommendations are that they should wear a mask and socially distance, particularly when they're inside with people who remain unvaccinated. And hopefully because they've chosen to be vaccinated, they understand the risks and will take the recommended precautions. Around the world, Jeremy, this Delta variant is causing massive chaos. We've been talking about Japan and the Olympics. Cases have risen so fast now that there's a state of emergency in Japan and the International Olympic Committee will be prohibiting spectators, even those from Japan, from attending the games. In other parts of Asia, cases are rising with countries like Indonesia seeing the worst numbers since the start of the pandemic. In Australia, a country that appeared to have the pandemic well controlled, cases have now risen so fast that contact tracers can't keep up with them and the country is in lockdown for the first time in over a year. What Americans don't fully recognize is how devastated our nation would be if 70% of adults weren't vaccinated as they are today. Everything else, masks, six foot distancing, contact tracing, or even the medications that are available really are relatively speaking, Band-Aids. Masks and social distancing can keep people protected in the moment, but whenever the masks come off, whenever people become exposed to the virus, they're likely to become infected, particularly with the Delta variant. In fact, our nation, I think, would be in total shutdown now with hospitals overflowing if the Delta variant had come ashore and met a fully at-risk population. The biggest threat, as we've said, is that a couple of additional mutations to the Delta variant could make it resistant to the current vaccines, and suddenly all Americans would be at risk of getting infected. Our best hope is for the world to become vaccinated and get the virus under control before this happens.
0: Second, is the Delta variant responsible for the people who get sick after they're
1: vaccinated? Jeremy, I love how our listeners are wanting to dive deeper into the science. As listeners have learned from prior shows, few answers when it comes to COVID-19 are either yes or no. Breakthrough infections happen whenever a vaccine isn't 100% effective. You may recall that the researchers reported the vaccine to be 95% effective. So we'd expect that for every 95 unvaccinated people who become infected, there would be five vaccinated individuals with a breakthrough infection. Now, five sounds like a lot until you realize that although people would contract the virus, the vaccine is over 99% effective at protecting against severe disease, which is very reassuring, and it's what we're seeing. So even without the Delta variant, we'd be seeing infections in some vaccinated individuals. What the more transmissible variant has done is to make this problem more frequent. Rather than the vaccines being 95% effective as they were against the original COVID-19, they're probably in the 80 to 90% effective range against the new Delta variant, so that a higher percentage of people who become ill will have previous vaccination. But so far, severe disease remains incredibly rare. The reason the vaccines work to protect against severe illness is becoming clearer. Researchers enrolled 4,000 healthcare workers, essential workers and first responders. Among this group of 4,000 during the observation period, 204 became infected with the coronavirus but of those, only 16 had received either one or both of the vaccine shots. As such, the data indicates that there is overall excellent protection against becoming infected despite being exposed. Moreover, those who had been vaccinated experienced only mild to moderate cases and none required hospitalization. The interesting part was in comparing viral load between the two groups. The researchers found that when people get infected after being vaccinated, the viral quantity in their nasal cavity is significantly less, 40% less than in the unvaccinated group. And as a result, they have a 66% lower risk of having any detectable virus still present after one week of infection compared with the unvaccinated individuals. This means that they not only are less sick, but they recover faster. And for these reasons, it's likely that vaccinated people have a diminished chance of transmitting the virus even when they become infected due to the lower viral loads and shorter time of disease duration. Unfortunately, with the greater transmissibility of the data variant, a 40% viral load could be just as contagious as a 100% level was during the original coronavirus. Third, what has been
0: Israel's experience with this variant, given that they had led the world in vaccination rates using similar vaccines to the United States?
1: As you know, Jeremy, Israel, like the US, has relied on one of the current mRNA vaccines. In this case, the one manufactured by Pfizer. And in doing extensive testing, they have found that the effectiveness of the vaccine against infection has dropped down to 64% when it comes to the Delta variant, which sounds worrisome. Once again, the effectiveness of preventing severe symptoms and hospitalizations fortunately remains high at 93%. What the data indicates is that the danger has grown as the Delta variant has become the dominant strain in the US, and the gap between those immunized and those who remain at risk has expanded even more due to the higher transmissibility of the new strain. This, is why, as we said earlier, that for people in areas with a large unvaccinated population, it's a good time to continue to wear a mask and avoid crowded indoor spaces. In recognition of this increased risk, Israel is encouraging anyone who comes in contact with an infected person to be tested and quarantined. However, before listeners become overly concerned about the 64% number, some epidemiologists have pointed out that the lower number might be an artifact resulting from the intense testing that's being done rather than a true dramatic change in protectiveness. The reason is that asymptomatic cases in the past might've gone unnoticed and not documented. Whereas now the testing is so broad and universal that all of the cases are being found. This question of how protective the vaccine is, is currently being debated in the United States. On one hand, Pfizer is pushing the FDA for approval to administer a third shot to people for added protection against the Delta variant. But at least so far, the CDC and FDA have said a third shot is unnecessary. Robbie, one listener
0: question was, Why if our family is fully vaccinated, did LA County just recommend that we continue to wear masks inside?
1: Jeremy, here's where politics plays into science. State officials are reluctant to create two categories of people or issue any type of identifying certificates for the vaccinated part of the population. For this reason, to minimize spread and protect the unvaccinated against the Delta variant, Masks are needed to be worn by all. Masking those who are vaccinated provides an added level of protection for people who remain unvaccinated. Moreover, since this latter group has a significant risk of becoming very sick and needing hospitalization and even dying, minimizing their exposure to vaccinated people who could have an asymptomatic case, one that was mild for the person would be life-saving for the unvaccinated individual. Our nation faces a challenge of trying to make one size fit all. With pockets of people remaining unvaccinated and the Delta variant becoming the most common strain, dropping masks and eliminating social distancing will invariably lead to a spike in cases. Even though masks will not make a huge difference, for the health of the people vaccinated in the Los Angeles areas. Listeners can think of this as a valuable public health measure for the greater good of the total Southern California community.
0: A listener wrote to tell us how pleased she was with our global coverage of the pandemic. She wanted to know what is the current thinking of the vaccine that was developed in China being distributed to many countries around the world.
1: I appreciate her positive words. In a global pandemic, what happens in a distant part of the world quickly becomes the US reality. If anyone has a doubt, just look at how fast the Delta variant has gone from its inception in India to being the most prevalent strain in the US. We still don't have a final answer to this listener's question about the two vaccines that are manufactured in China, where we're getting new data that brings into question the level of efficacy of this particular vaccine. If we look at three nations in the Middle East that all have highly vaccinated populations, Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates, the two vaccines that are used in Israel are mRNA vaccines, one from the U.S. and one from Great Britain, while the other two nations use vaccines from China, more commonly the Sinopharm vaccine. This vaccine is a more traditional one, It uses an inactivated form of the coronavirus itself. So when we look at the populations in Israel and Bahrain, both have about a 60% rate of vaccination with the UAE being around 50%. But when we look at the pandemic control, the results are quite different in the various nations. In Israel, the total number of cases and hospitalizations are down dramatically, even though the Delta variant is having a major negative impact on the part of the country that refuses to be vaccinated. In contrast, in the other two countries, the number of cases remain moderately high, although the severity of disease is nowhere near as great as in the unvaccinated nations of the world. In recognition of the lower efficacy of the vaccine manufactured in China, healthcare leaders in both countries are now recommending that vaccinated individuals get a booster dose using the Pfizer vaccine. And consistent with this observation of reduced efficacy, we've seen major disease outbreaks in other countries like Chile and Indonesia that have relied on a second Chinese vaccine called Sinovac, one manufactured by a private Chinese company, but one that uses a similar inactivated virus vaccine approach. Putting the pieces together, it appears that the vaccines manufactured in China aren't as effective as the currently available vaccines in the U.S. But the magnitude of the difference, that's still uncertain. Contributing to the poor outcomes could be problems with the overall healthcare system, could reflect a higher prevalence of the Delta variant with a greater impact on the unvaccinated parts of the population. Estimates have been done in Brazil, Chile, and Turkey that show that the Sinovac is about 60% effective at preventing disease, while the Sinopharm is approximately 75% effective. And the later is not dissimilar from what we see with the AstraZeneca, and it's close to the phase three trials of the J&J vaccine. All of these numbers are lower than for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which were shown to be 95% effective. But remember, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were tested against the first coronavirus, not the 225% more transmissible Delta variant. As such, we can't be sure the exact magnitude of the difference when it comes to the efficacy in these different categories and countries of origin. But what is clear, regardless of the vaccine, highly vaccinated populations are being impacted less than unvaccinated ones, even when the effectiveness of the specific vaccine varies. You know, given a choice, most nations would choose the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine for its people but most nations don't have a choice. What's available to them are predominantly the Chinese vaccines, not the ones from the US. And listeners should remember that before the phase three testing was complete on the US vaccines, the FDA had set a 50% effectiveness level as the hurdle needed for approval. And all of these vaccines seem to clear that requirement. Even if the current mRNA vaccines could be purchased by these nations, they require storage at very low temperatures, something that demands special freezers, something that these countries simply don't have. If the data on effectiveness, particularly against the Delta variant, proves relatively low, one big long-term risk is that these nations might never achieve herd immunity. And remember, what herd immunity means is that enough of the country is immune that the virus disappears on its own. But if the vaccine is only 50 or 60% effective, that might mean that there's enough people who could become sick to allow the virus to continue to replicate inside the population. And that would expose, first, that nation to continued viral mutations that could then spread elsewhere and put people who are currently immune once again at risk.
0: Robbie, with the number of individuals being vaccinated having fallen from 4 million per day to about half a million, it would appear that there is a growing resistance, or at least hesitancy, to being vaccinated among those without immunity. What do we know about this population of people?
1: Jeremy, first, those who remain unvaccinated represent a diverse population. And they fall into at least four different categories. The first are people who just can't seem to find the time to be vaccinated. and In response, the government is shifting vaccine allocation from large arenas to doctors' offices and pharmacies in the hope that people will decide to be vaccinated when they come for other medical care and drugstore needs. Then there are two groups who are most resistant. There are those in red voting states who don't believe the government's warnings about the danger of COVID or the efficacy and safety of the current vaccines. More specifically, in those states that voted Republican last year, vaccine rates are dramatically lower than in those that voted for President Biden. And the correlation between voter preference and vaccine rates is close to 90%. Third, there are the younger individuals, young adults who don't perceive themselves at major risk and often feel invincible. And finally, there's a group of people who are still on the fence as to whether they want to roll up their sleeve. Among them are individuals waiting for their employers to require the vaccine as a condition of employment and others waiting for the FDA to provide full authorization. You know, this later hesitancy reflects a failure in communication. Ask most Americans about the difference between emergency use authorization, which is what the vaccines have today, and final approval. And they assume it reflects a differing level of effectiveness or safety. The actual reason for the different categories is a matter of time, not clinical outcome discrepancy. It takes the same level of proof to obtain either, but to obtain final approval demands six months of data rather than just two. Hopefully with the vaccine having now been administered for over a half year, full approval will be coming soon. This may result in not only more individuals stepping forward, but also more businesses mandating vaccination as a condition to return to work, which will be an added nudge for those still on the fence.
0: Robbie, our Good News segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good
1: this week? Jeremy, the Good News segment these days always has to contain stories about the success of the current vaccines. Data from San Diego show that less than 1% of new cases are among people who have been vaccinated and fewer than one in 500 hospitalizations and deaths occurred in vaccinated individuals. Estimates from Yale University and the Commonwealth Fund indicate that there would have been 1.25 million more patients hospitalized and 279,000 more deaths had our nation not had an effective vaccine. Rather than the few hundred people dying each day, as we're seeing now, the number would most likely be 10 times greater or approximately 4,500 patients losing their lives, according to their study, each day. And I can't think of any good news that would be better than over a quarter of a million people alive who otherwise would not have been without modern science. And vaccines have allowed Broadway to reopen again. It's appropriate that the first star to take the stage was the boss, Mr. Bruce Springsteen. His mainly one-man show tells the story of our nation's struggles and ultimate triumphs through word and song. He sings a few duets with his wife and East Street Band member, Miss Patty Scalfa. To attend the performance, theatergoers had to present proof Of vaccination. And in the same way that his stories end with optimism, hopefully the current coronavirus pandemic will be resolved. And then finally, there's a growing recognition that COVID 19 can be passed from humans to animals. And in response, doses of the vaccine have been donated by a veterinary drug company to the Denver Zoo, which will join the Oakland Zoo in vaccinating a wide range of animals, including tigers black bears, grizzly bears, mountain lions, and ferrets. And if all goes well, primates, including chimpanzees, will be next.
0: Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast. Beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus, what's the big healthcare story?
1: This week, I'll give you two stories, Jeremy. The first huge development was the implementation by President Biden of a rule preventing patients for receiving what is called surprise medical bills or more technically out of network billing. It follows passage in Congress of the President Trump of legislation, taking patients out of the middle of the disagreements between hospitals, doctors, and insurance companies. Let me give you the backstory. As insurance companies have pushed harder to keep healthcare more affordable and doctors have demanded higher payments for the work they do, stalemates have resulted. In response, physicians working in hospitals have refused to sign contracts with insurance companies. When patients come for care, they must pay whatever gets billed. As such an ER doctor or anesthesiologist might charge $3,000 for a service that the insurance company only reimburses at 1,000. The patient might assume that since the hospital is part of his or her network, that all the care provided would be covered by the insurance Minus, of course, the usual out of pocket costs. And suddenly the family is hit with a $2,000 added bill, and they're sued if they decide not to pay or can't afford to do so. The legislation requires the hospital insurance company to resolve the dispute, with the patient being responsible only for the charges that normally would come through their policy for all the doctors in network. And if the insurers and providers can't agree how much the insurance company will reimburse the hospital or physician, there would be mandatory arbitration. The only exception would be under three circumstances, when the services are rendered aren't emergent, when they're scheduled more than three days in advance, and when written notice is given to the patient about the higher cost and the patient agrees. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation survey, two in three Americans fear surprise billing, and that concern is real. An estimated one in five ER visits leads to an out-of-network bill, and one in six in-network hospitalizations includes at least one out-of-network bill. Some of these surprise bills can total in the tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Come 2022, these patient fears should dissipate and disappear. The second big story was data on how many doctors now work for insurance companies Hospitals and private equity firms. Overall, that number is now close to 70%, with approximately 50% of physicians being paid directly by one of these companies or facilities. That's a huge increase from the past. Over the past two years alone, 48,000 doctors have left independent practice, and the number of practices owned by hospitals or corporations have soared 21%. Jeremy, Transparency is becoming increasingly important in healthcare. There's now quite a bit of legislation to require disclosure. If you could price shop among doctors and hospitals for non-emergent services, do you think you'd do so? Absolutely, Robbie.
0: It, it actually blows my mind just how far behind healthcare is compared to other industries in this regard. I feel like we should have access to all of the data around quality and cost. I wouldn't spend a couple thousand dollars on a new computer without doing my homework, comparing prices and reading reviews. Why should healthcare be any different for equally expensive, but significantly more important purchases? Uh, This information needs to be made publicly available in an easy to find place. Um, I should never be going in for non-emergent care
1: without having an idea of what the cost is going to be. Let me ask you a second question about information that is becoming available specific to whether the doctors you're seeing are being paid by drug and device companies, so-called Sunshine Act, or whether they're being paid by the hospitals in which they work rather than directly for you. Would knowing either of these change your choice of physicians for yourself or for your son? Robbie, it
0: would make a huge difference. I don't want drug manufacturers or device companies influencing the care I or my son get, period. Um, I also wouldn't want a doc paid based on the procedures they perform. Ideally, doctors should be salaried and be focused on giving the best care in the most cost-effective way, focused on preventative care. I don't want any decisions doctors have around my sons or my own care influenced in any way, either consciously or subconsciously by financial incentives. Robbie, our nation has seen a huge drop in longevity over the past year. What happened and what does it bode for the future?
1: Jeremy, as you said, we've seen life expectancy drop significantly during 2020. According to research published in JAMA, there was a 1.13-year decrease, about a 14-month decrease in life expectancy in the US, split apart by race, White patients had about a two thirds of a year decrease in longevity. Black patients had over a two year decrease and Latino patients saw over a three year decrease in their life expectancy. The data is disturbing both in terms of overall outcomes for the US and its racial implications. Even before the pandemic, the US lagged the other 11 most industrialized nations in the world in terms of life expectancy. And our nation had major disparities in healthcare outcomes based on race and ethnicity. All of us became worse over the past 18 months. Of course, the reasons are multifactorial. First, the half million or so deaths from COVID-19 set our nation back in terms of life expectancy. And socioeconomic factors Including gaps in healthcare coverage, disproportionately impacted various minority groups. The worsening mortality rates also point to cultural factors, ones I highlight in the book Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Although part of the problem with chronic disease is that physicians aren't paid enough to spend the time focusing on prevention and avoidance of complications from chronic disease, another contributing factor. That the cultural medicine simply doesn't value these roles as much as it values intervening during moments of crisis. We elevate the interventional cardiologist or the heart surgeon who unblocks the blood vessel to the heart, but not the primary care physician who prevents the problem in the first place. That has to change. And similarly, black and brown patients frequently work in jobs that require them to go to an office each day, and they had to take public transportation during COVID-19. But at the same time, when they came for care, doctors failed to test Black patients with the same symptoms as white patients nearly as often, and they administered 40% less pain medication when they underwent identical procedures. Neither of these actions can be explained outside of the physician's control. Across history, doctors could do little for patients. Faced with a medical problem for which they could offer little, physicians learned to repress and deny their emotions, allowing them to accept death without personal guilt. These same defense mechanisms continue to be handed down from one generation of physicians to the next. Sometimes, as in the early days of COVID, they allowed physicians to provide heroic medical care and to ignore the personal danger they encounter. This is the wonderful, the heroic side of the physician culture. But these same defense mechanisms also allow doctors not to notice when their actions harm patients, such as we discussed as part of surprise billing. In the post-coronavirus era, Jeremy, I believe that both the system and the culture will need to evolve and if we don't move both forward, we are going to see neither change and that will continue to negatively impact the health of Americans, our life expectancy and the growing unaffordability of American medicine.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this show is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus the Truth, and have a great day.